This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting for financial security for our seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Christine Ross for Libby's Nimer. Efforts to lower the age for breast screening across Canada. And Fighting City Hall, why some older Zoomers are upset with a new car-free rule at High Park. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Are you struggling to hit 10,000 steps a day? Well, there's some good news. A new study finds just under 4,000 steps is enough to reduce the risk of dying from any cause. And a lower step count of just over 2,000 steps can make you less likely to suffer from cardiovascular disease. Of course, the more steps, the better, and the risk of dying decreases significantly with every 500 to 1,000 steps. Israel is making it easier to access medical cannabis. While regulatory obstacles are removed for some patients in need of the drug, chronic pain sufferers would still be required to go through the bureaucratic licensing process. This week, the health ministry published its new reforms to take effect in December that allows more patients to have access to the drug. The ministry says it will review the policy in a year and may expand access. Two-thirds of Canadians and Americans admit to working while on vacation. A new study by a U.S.-based online education platform reveals that a majority of employees cannot stop engaging in work-related activities during their holidays. And the study finds this behavior not only sacrifices much-needed downtime, but it takes a toll on mental health. Of those polled, 6 in 10 say they feel anxious if they don't check their work emails while away. It also finds that a third of employees experience an expectation to work during time off, and this unspoken pressure often leads to a sense of guilt. One of the companies that benefited most from the rise of remote work is calling its own employees back to the office. Video conferencing platform Zoom is asking its 7,500 workers to report to their desks twice a week, effective immediately. It marks the end of a fully remote era for the company that became ubiquitous during the pandemic. In a statement, the company says a hybrid approach is most effective for the company's productivity. It's a legend that dates back generations. What's being described as the biggest search for the Loch Ness Monster since the early 1970s will be held later this month. Drones will fly over the loch with special equipment to detect unusual underwater sounds. Organizers will also look for possible signs of a creature from safe vantage points on land. And people can pay for trips on the loch during the search. According to some experts, previous sightings of the fabled monster may in fact be giant eels. I'm Christine Ross, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Should breast cancer screening start at 40? That's a key recommendation in a new study from researchers at the Ottawa Hospital and the University of Ottawa. 
Breast cancer is among the leading causes of death for women in their 40s and 50s in Canada, but currently only women 50 and older get routine screening through the Ontario Breast Screening Program. This new study published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology argues that lowering the age will offer a better chance of survival. We reached one of the authors, Professor Dr. Jean Seeley, head of breast imaging at the Ottawa Hospital. Your report makes the argument for lowering the age of breast cancer screening right across Canada. Why is that? What did you find? Well, we found that women who lived in provinces that do screen women in their 40s who were diagnosed with an invasive cancer, a breast cancer that had already spread beyond the margins of the ducts, they actually um, had a, um, a higher likelihood of living longer than women who were diagnosed, who lived in provinces that did not screen women in their 40s. So we, we uh, know that screening does reduce um, uh, deaths from breast cancer. And our study um, really showed that this was uh, the fact in Canada. And we don't know who was screened and who was not, but we do know that in those provinces that screen women in their 40s, there's about 30 to 40 percent of women actually participate in screening. So that was a good way to show that screening actually was the definite correlation with this benefit. So this age group is not routinely scanned now. Um, the healthcare system will need more technicians to screen, radiologists to interpret. It's no secret that the healthcare system is already short-staffed, not to mention where will the money come from for the additional screening. So there are some roadblocks. Yes, and one of the things that we have discovered in our research is that the costs of treating women with breast cancer that are more advanced um, at a higher stage that are likely diagnosed from symptoms have actually increased significantly, um, up to 10 to 20 times higher than they were even 10 years ago. So we anticipate that some of the costs um, saved from diagnosing breast cancer at an earlier stage will be able to offset the costs of, of screening women, uh, more women in their 40s. Uh, and, and yes, there are, um, we will need more technologists, um, those, um, people who do the mammograms and radiologists. Um, but this is something that is feasible. It's being done in other provinces where they've, they've started to do more screening women in their 40s. And we anticipate that this is something the healthcare system can absorb. And as I said, will reduce some of the downstream costs from, you know, avoiding a late stage diagnosis. But what happens then in in this group of women, 40 to 49, if you notice things like uh, false positives that lead to biopsies? How do you know if or when this will turn to cancer? And does it cause younger women undue anxiety? Oh, those are great questions. Uh, So that's one of the reasons people say, oh, not to screen women in their 40s. We we have very good data in Canada. We have, we have excellent uh, kind of twenty year um, data showing what happens when we screen women in their forties is the same as if we screen them in their fifties and sixties. The rate of what you call false positives, where a woman gets um, recalled after um, an abnormal screen, is the same as if it, you know it, does, it doesn't really matter if she's in her forties or fifties. There's no increased rate uh, of that. And um, it's not really a false positive. What what it means is that there's an abnormality seen on the mammogram that needs extra imaging, more mammograms, and and often an ultrasound. Um, and in eighty percent of those cases, it the women are reassured. It's mm-hmm. not um, a cancer. It doesn't even need a biopsy to prove that it's not a cancer. So. Um, 
it, there is definitely a risk when you have a mammogram that that can happen. And I think women have to be aware of that. But most women are much um, more concerned about not being able to be caught at an early stage than having those um, abnormal recalls and um, and and being uh, reassured with subsequent imaging, if, if that uh, makes sense to you. There, there, um, it's been said that there is a reluctance from family doctors to recommend screening at a younger age and compounding the issue is that many in Ontario don't even have a family doctor. So if a woman in that age group wants access to earlier screening, what can they do? This is a big problem. Like women in their 50s and 60s and 70s who want to be screened, they're allowed to go and present for a screening mammogram without a referral from a family physician. But women in their 40s face this extra barrier of having to ask for a requisition from their family physician if they live in a province that doesn't screen women in their 40s. And this is a huge barrier because, as you mentioned, um, there are, you know, 2 million women or people in Ontario who don't have a family physician. So we are advocating that women in their 40s should be allowed to have the same opportunity to get a screening mammogram as women in their 50s and be able to self-refer to the screening program um, if, if they want to have a screening mammogram. And how different is it across the country? I guess it's a mix of some are allowing this age group, some other provinces and territories don't. How, how is that going to be fixed if it should be across the board? Well, we uh, feel that the the best way to do this is to have very unified guidelines. And we are advocating for the Canadian Task Force to update their guidelines to allow women in their 40s and to recommend women in their 40s be able to have the same opportunities as women in their 50s and 60s and 70s so that they can make an informed decision to be able to participate in screening and then to be, um, you know, in a high-quality screening program um, the way we we do it for women in their 50s and 60s. So um, this would be a benefit if we had a uniform policy what we have now is some provinces that don't follow the Canadian Task Force guidelines who recommend against screening women in their 40s. And then we have some provinces like Ontario recommending against it following the task force. Those task force guidelines haven't been updated since 2018, and they really are based on very old data. So we would like the Canadian Task Force to use up-to-date data to recommend um, more up-to-date information about allowing screening for women in their 40s. And that's the basis of what the U.S. Uh, Preventive Task Force um, guidelines, the draft now says that they recommend screening women in their 40s. So we'd like the Canadian Task Force to have one uniform policy that would allow all of Canadians to be you know, treated equally. Dr. Jean Seeley, thank you so much for this. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Jean Seeley, radiology professor at the University of Ottawa and the head of breast imaging at the Ottawa Hospital. I'm Christine Ross, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, older Zoomers and those with mobility issues are fighting City Hall over its plan to limit cars inside Toronto's High Park. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting against ageism in the workplace and the marketplace. Find out more at carp.ca. is really coming down to an issue of age discrimination. That's Anthony Quinn, community officer with the Zoomer advocacy group CARP. 
He's sent a letter to Mayor Olivia Chow asking the city to reconsider new rules banning cars from High Park. He calls it a leave grandma at home policy. Meantime, protesters continue to gather at the West End Park in a turf war over City Hall's new anti-car measures that bans vehicles on weekends and holidays, with city staff working on a plan to eventually ban cars altogether. There are many groups who've supported the ban, pointing to the success of other big cities around the globe. Tensions recently boiled over at one of the rallies. We reached senior Diane Bacall of the group High Park Access for All, who wants City Hall to ensure everyone has access. When people think of parks, we think of green space and people out walking and enjoying the amenities. We don't think of cars. Why are you and members of your group so passionate in your fight against City Hall to make it a car-friendly zone? Because. So many people are dependent on transport. It's a, it's 399 acres, and it's hilly, and most of the major venues are in the middle of the park: the zoo, the Grenadier Restaurant, the Hillside Gardens, uh, Grenadier Pond. There are long walks from the entranceways, and people uh, with, you know, mobility issues, small children, just can't do that. And they, this, we're not pro-car, we're not anti-cyclist, but people we, we want people to be able to access the park, and this is shutting people out. The councillor for the area, Gord Perk, says that they are working on a way to have some sort of transit or train uh, allowing people in and out of the park. Is that Does that sit well with you? If I'm still alive in five years, it might, because that's how long it's going to take them to find a suitable vehicle. Now, you know, the group CARP, the Zoomer group, has said that this is, um, they're calling it more of an ageist policy. Do you agree? Well, yes. I, and of course, that is what CARP is all about. But it, And it is ageist, very ageist. But it's also families with young children. I, if, if you check our petition and read the comments, there's a great many of them say that. People saying, I take my mother to the park and I can't anymore, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Do you frame this as a uh, generational divide in terms of those who want to have cars in the park and those that don't? Uh, Well, as the main body of people who want not to have cars in the park do seem to be of a younger demographic than I am. But that's because most people don't think past their own experiences and they don't realize what it's like to get old. So how would you tell other people how, how, just how difficult it is now for those who, have, who are older and, and those who have mobility issues? How difficult is it to maneuver into that park? Well, it's impossible if you can't walk any distance. It's as simple as that. We need the park fully opened so everybody can enjoy it. It's about people. Everyone should have access to park in their own time, seven days a week, not be corralled into specific times and places due to physical limitations. The city is turning Hyde Park into a personal playground for the fit and the able-bodied. And what do you say to those who say, look, there are other large cities right around the globe who have such parks and there's no vehicles allowed and everyone gets along just fine? Well, we have them too. There's a whole area of the Lakeshore, there's the Humber River Valley, the Leslie Street Spit, Rouge Park... Rosedale Ravine, the rail path, Mount Pleasant, the brick walks is a very enjoyable walk with no cars. 
This is more about not in my backyard. This is the people who, some of the people, some of the people who live around the park who don't want cars in the park. They've been a very influential in this decision. Do you feel that your group was consulted at all? Well, I did the survey and I was at all the meetings. Uh, and I was one of many of the people who were involved with us. But it was um, promoted as a traffic study. Nobody knew about it. Uh, that's what everybody says. Nobody knew. I didn't know. I didn't know. Since we, all this publicity, our petition is getting 150 people signing up every day. And they only interviewed 73 people actually in the park. So I don't know where, where they get their figures from. And it was promoted as a traffic study. Gord Perks claims that there was ample com- consultation with all parties, all stakeholders involved. The stakeholders, they were, uh, most of the stakeholders were at, at least some of the meetings, yes, but we weren't, they weren't listened to. And as I say, again, it was promoted as a traffic study. Nobody anticipated they were going to close the park down. You say you're seeing less people using the park. Do you think that this is something the city anticipated? Well, I have to think that they're trying to keep people out of the park. It's it's obvious if you close it down, it's going to be empty. They're taking they've taken away 335 parking spaces, and if if you were there two weeks ago on a nice sunny day, the park was full of, of parked cars. What is the next step then for High Park Access for All? I know there have been some rallies. What will you do next to keep the pressure on the city to reverse course? Everything we can. (laughs) That's all we can do. Uh, I don't think we should have to put pressure on the city. They should realize they've made an error and put it right. Will there be more rallies? Yes. Diane, thank you for this. Thank you, Christine, for calling. That was Diane Bakel of the group High Park Access for All. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Christine Ross for Libby's Nimer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.